you can all, uh, now Richard's directed you all to your phones, so, you know, <laughs> sneakily TikToking or Facebook or whatever, you know, put it away now. Uh, right, <laughs> it's all right, Richard, it's all right. Um, or you could all be browsing the church calendar too. Um, that's just as fun. Um, right, we are continuing this morning our series through the Apostles' Creed. And so uh, we're going to start off by reading the Apostles' Creed together. Um, yeah. Excellent. Uh, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Excellent. So we are using the Apostles' Creed as a framework uh, to, to look at the essentials of Christian belief and what we believe is part of who we are. And so today, I have the joy of talking about God, the creator of heaven and earth. Now, last week, Dan took us through Father Almighty, how God, so wanting a relationship with us, came he died, brought us into that eternal relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that Trinitarian relationship, and how we, as people of God, as Christians, have been welcomed into that through the work of Jesus. Now, looking at the Creator, we are going to be looking at Psalm 8. We're going to be using Psalm 8 to just show us about God and, and who He is as Creator, and hopefully well, not hopefully, expecting God to speak to us through this. So, if you would like to turn to Psalm 8, I shall read it for us. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we're going to be looking at three things coming from this psalm. Um, I'm getting a little bit lazy in my older age, so there's no alliteration today. These are just three points. We're going to be looking at how God is creator and how creation draws us to worship. We're going to be looking at being created for purpose and we're going to be looking at new creation. So first, 
We're going to start with worship. For those of you who are particularly observant, if you've been looking at a psalm or listen, actually, you'll see that the psalm is bookended. We've got, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It is beginning and end. It is a sense that that, that worship, worship of God in all the earth is kind of encapsulated in here. I think of it as David writing this psalm. I, I think it goes back to when David was a shepherd boy when he's out looking after the sheep, he's in the countryside, lying on his back, the sheep are tucked in for the night, and he looks up at the sky. There is no light pollution, and he can see everything. He sees the moon, he sees all the stars, he sees the wonders of the heavens above. And David's, I imagine, lying there just going, whoa. He spends all of his days walking around in the countryside. He sees all the hills. He sees all the wild animals. He uh, defends himself from a few of them. But he still appreciates the immensity of what God has made. There's this sense of worship. And, and the way David puts this in this psalm, he, he, he identifies God by name, Yahweh, our Lord. He says, God, we are under you and your authority. You are our God. How majestic, how great is your name in, in the whole earth. And this was a fantastic thing about the God of Israel. In ancient times, it wasn't just that God was, was the God of Israel. Sorry, I will tighten things and hope that I'm not making a mess with this. Uh, it wasn't just that God was the God of a certain area. It wasn't just that God was the God of the plains or the God of the mountains. It wasn't that it was just the God of one people group, even though at times Israel felt that. Actually, he was the God of all the earth. How majestic is your name in the whole earth? He created everything. And so for us, I think there is actually a sense of creation, all that God has made, leading us to worship. And I, I, personally, I think there's, there's a couple of ways in which we do that. The first one is kind of big picture. This is where we kind of step back and we admire something. I don't know if, if you've ever been on a walk. And um, I remember do, doing a walk near where I used to live. It was a very steep hill. So we only did it a couple of times. But you'd walk for hours up an endlessly steep hill. And then you kind of crest the summit and then this view would open up before you and you're just, you're blown away because you see the lakes and the mountains, you see just this huge, incredible view and you just soak it in. It leads you to praise. There's something that stirs in our spirit because of it. And whether it's, you know, looking at birds in trees or whether it's looking at a sunset, we don't focus necessarily on the details. We just kind of step back and we appreciate big picture appreciation. We are drawn to worship through God's creation. Now, the second way, well, okay, before the second way, that there's enough in creation to point us to God. I think the Bible would say there's enough going on around us. There's, a, there's enough, when you look at that view, there's enough of it to kind of go, wow, there is something bigger than just me at work here. But the Bible talks about actually how the world is blind to it. And so what the second point we've got, we've got big picture appreciation of creation. We've got kind of details, which is 
science, let's be honest. We'll look at how everything works. And this is probably the moment I have been waiting for all of my life, where I get to preach and do science in one moment, and I will not preach again after this. That's it. I've peaked. This is it. So we're going to... we're going to nerd out together. Um, but there's this sense of actually, in the details, we can see a God at work. Now, just to reassure people, there is no conflict between God and science. Science came about because of Christians who wanted to see how God had made everything. Christians wanted to see kind of magnificent, intelligent brilliance of their creator and how he'd made the whole world. Oh, oh, okay. (laughs) I will leave that there for now. Probably why it doesn't work. Um, Christians started science. It started from religion. Now, what is it, conflict? is philosophy. If you approach science with a materialistic philosophy, if you think that all there is, is what you can see, what you can touch, what you can feel, if you try an experiment where you repeat it, where, you know, I say, I'm going to say to God, manifest yourself three times. If he doesn't do it, there's obviously no God. That doesn't mean materialism's right. All it means is there's a God that doesn't obey your rules. You know, we don't believe in materialism or deism. We don't believe that God created everything and just set it on its way. We believe in a God who is real and who interacts with the world now. And we believe that actually his creation can lead us to worship. So I have set a challenge for the guys on visuals uh, this week. They uh, love me for it, I'm sure. Uh, So we are going to nerd out, but no good Sciencey slideshow is complete without a laser pointer. And you know what, church? The Lord provides in our need. So, this morning I was without laser pointer, and now I have gained a laser pointer. Oh, I've lost the on button. Right, I'm going to point to things. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, amen. <laughs> uh, this is not, yeah, uh, okay. I, I'd planned this, that I would hold my slide, my, my notes, and the laser pointer, lightsaber, let's be honest. Uh, so I'm going to be doing a bit of running back and forward so I can see my notes. Right, I'm going to need a bit of audience participation in this. So can we bring up our first slide, please? That we're going to nerd out. Great. Any idea what this is? Zoom. Zoom. Sun, yes. Great answer. This is the sun. Now, it looks like an awful picture. This looks like the uh, digital cameras I had as a child taking a picture of the sun, but that's not it. This is a picture of the sun that, sorry, I'm horribly distracted, uh, that took, um, that took, this picture took three years to take, okay? And it took three years to take because it was taken through the earth. You don't, you know, ordinarily, if we were to take a picture of the sun, we look up, we point a camera at the sun, and we get a picture. This was taken by, at nighttime, putting 
the, the kind of detector, the camera, through the earth. And what would happen is really small things called neutrinos. Here we go, we've started small. We're, we're, we're working through it. Neutrinos, millions of them put out by the sun, pass through the earth. They're so small, they travel through atoms completely undetected. Mostly. So what they did, some scientists in Japan, they filled a mine with water. And I'm talking over 50 million liters of water. And what happens is every now and then, a neutrino hits a water molecule and gives a little flash of light. And so, over three years, you build up a picture of the sun taken through the earth. That's cool. This is so cool. Next. Next slide, please. Now, ah, anybody know the chemical formula for water? Yes, we've got it. Now, this is a wildly inaccurate um, kind of structural picture of water. We've got our H, which I now realize you can barely see on the screen, but we've got little H's there, and we've got an oxygen there, H2O. Now, a fascinating thing about water is oxygen is really rather greedy, and so it pulls the electrons to itself. So the next slide will show the charges that appear on the molecule. If I haven't broken it already. Have I broken it already? Well, okay, okay, yes! Negative oxygen, slightly positive hydrogen, winner, right? This doesn't look like much, and in fact, it's probably incredibly boring for most of you, but no, this is essential to life. Okay, this is absolutely amazing. So, our next slide will show how water molecules interact, okay? Because of this slight charge on the hydrogen and the oxygen, we have a bond. We have hydrogen bonding, yeah. Which means, yes, <laughs> praise the Lord. Which means that actually water can form slightly bigger structures. So on the next slide, we will have Again, a wildly inaccurate, but quite visible picture of how water can interact. These hydrogen bonds are absolutely amazing because this means water doesn't boil at minus 20. This means water boils at 100 degrees, which means we can drink it, which means life on Earth exists. It also means ice floats. I don't know if you've ever thought of this. Ice is the solid form of water, but it floats on top of it. You know, it shouldn't, really. It's something solid. The atoms are meant to be closer together. They're meant to drop, but ice floats. Cool little fact. Right. <laughs> Next one, please. Don't worry, people. I'm firing through this. You know, for those of you who usually sleep for a preach, this is nap time. It's all right. Um, right. These. Excellent. Adenine. Next one. Thymine, next one, guanine, and finally, cytosine. Excellent. Anybody know what these are? Go, we've got one hand. Shout it out. Yes, the basis for DNA. Excellent. This is, again, essential to life, because obviously, DNA is the blueprint of how we are made. But even better, let's... Move on to the next one. 
Yes. Those funny dots you saw with the water earlier, hydrogen bonding, well, we get hydrogen bonding in DNA. Not only does hydrogen bonding stop water boiling at ridiculously low, it holds your DNA together. It's cool. This is such a small, little, insignificant thing as a slight charge on an atom holds your DNA together, but it also doesn't hold it too tightly. That means your DNA can kind of undo like a zip. It means that your cells can recreate. It means that your cells can duplicate and stitch back together again. This is so cool. Go on then, let's see if the videos work. Yes. So then this is the double helix of DNA. This is what happens when those base pairs come together. This is what is in every cell. It's incredible. Now, next slide. This one I'm, I'm really excited about. Yes. Can everybody see that? This little walky thing is a technical name. Is a kinesin. This is in every cell of your body. You've got little robot-y things going around in you. <laughs> this is so cool, okay? This is how amazing God is. He made it so that in every cell of your body, we've got a cool little walky robot that is taking, there's loads of them, taking energy to the bits of your cells to make you work. It's, it's incredible. Go on then, next, oh, hold on, yes. Bit of audience participation again. How many cells in the body? Let's just have some shouting out. Seven, higher. Come on, let's get, let's get a number higher than seven. Seven trillion, okay. Any higher than seven trillion? Almost infinity. Okay, well, let's dial it down. Uh, <laughs> pull it back from there. I'm sure you're all desperate for the answer. So, 37 trillion is the recent estimate. That is obviously taking account many variables, but roughly 37 trillion. So, we've got DNA in all of those cells being held together by hydrogen bonds. We've got the cool robot kinesins going around all the different protein bits that have been made from the DNA. And we've got 37 trillion cells in which that's happening. We're looking at a creator who pays attention to the small details. He knows all the little bits. Next question. This one's... Um, you're going to have to wildly stab in the dark, okay? If all the DNA in your body was stretched out, end-to-end, -end, out of your 37 trillion cells, how many miles would it stretch? 300,000? What have we got? Go on, you have to shout, I can't... Rotherham and back. <laughs> yeah, excellent. <laughs> um, okay, slightly further than uh, Rotherham and back, slightly further than Doncaster and back. 10 billion miles. So, 
to kind of put that into a scale we'll all grasp and understand, that is twice the diameter of the solar system. That's crazy, isn't it? So in Rich, there's enough DNA to go twice the diameter of the solar system. In every single person here, there's enough, there's enough DNA to go twice the diameter of the solar system. That is mental. How much information is contained in your body that the chemicals that are important, like, you know, important for that stretch that far? Okay, next slide. There we go. This is roughly our location in the Milky Way. It's, it's pretty rough because it's actually just like a milky mess because you can't actually see the stars. Um, the diameter of our Milky Way, so we've done the diameter of the solar system. The diameter of our Milky Way is 100,000 light years. Now, a light year is how fast or how far you travel when you're traveling at the speed of light. That speed is 617 million miles per hour. So not even the speediest parent late for the school run will achieve 617 million miles per hour. So if you travel at 617 million miles per hour, it would take you 100,000 years to get across that. And that's one, that's one galaxy. Now, the next slide, please. Oh yeah, that's how many miles it is, by the way. That's how many miles it is, uh, instead of light years. Anyhow, next slide. This is a picture of Barnard's galaxy. Now, the twinkly stars are the stars in the Milky Way that are just getting in the way. The other stars are the stars in another galaxy. So not only have we got our galaxy, which is 100,000 light years across, there are loads of other galaxies out there. And it starts to become just mind-boggling. Next slide. We see here, stars forming. Now these stars are actually forming uh, just over 1,000 light years away. So they're actually closer to us than the other side of our galaxy. Mind-bogglingly. But it's just cool. The God who makes those neutrinos that pass through the Earth, the God who makes our DNA, is the same God who forms planets and stars. Next slide, please. This is dust and gas in the planet-forming band of a nebula. A nebula on Orion's sword, actually. So if you look up at the sky and you look at Orion, this is up there. And this is the stuff that God makes planets from. He uses little bits of gas, little bits of water, and well, I was about to say mashes them all together. I'm pretty sure that doesn't um, relay the elegance of what God does. Um, but God is still at work in his creation. Next slide, please. This is another galaxy. We start to see like the little red bits are all the different gases and the dust. and just, It's just mind-boggling when these little dots are stars. We orbit the sun. It's just one star 
And we see galaxies that aren't ours with all these different stars in it. And the final slide, please. It's done. We're getting to the end of the science bit. I'll put my laser pointer away, uh, unfortunately. This here. Go on then, one last time. Here, up there, um, this is Arendelle. Arendelle is the furthest star ever seen by humanity. It is 28 billion light years away. When we're thinking of the scale of things, you have to travel at light speed for 28 billion years to get there. It's insane. Now, kids, I'm going to need your help with this. Do you know the lyrics to Our God is a Great Big God? Yes, we do. He is higher than a... And he's deeper than a... He's wider and beyond... Amen. He's wider than the universe. You want some scale about how big God is. We can't. We can't comprehend it. I can't think of what 28 million, sorry, 28 billion light years is. How far that is away. I can't comprehend it. But this is the God who has made everything and made us. Amen. Uh, I'm going to put this away. Oh, there we go. It's too distracting. Right? We believe in a God who creates. We can, we can put that down now. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Great effort. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this guy's worked so hard all week to make sure that happened. Um, but we believe in a God who creates. And we believe that actually that creation, I think when we start looking at stuff, I think it's impossible not to be led to worship. There's something that rises in us, whether it's big picture looking at a sunset, whether it's nerding out at small details and stuff like that, there is something fantastic about seeing how God has made things to work. It's just brilliant. But then, when we see that scale, when we look through telescopes, when we look at things that are billions of light years away, David obviously couldn't do that. He had no idea. He just looked at the sky. But even just doing that, what we see in this psalm is I think it's a right response to feel a bit small. You know, when we think we are just one little planet going around one star, which is one star in a galaxy of thousands, which is one galaxy in trillions. You know, it's okay to feel small. David says in that psalm, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You know, we're pretty small. When God's making stars, he's making planets, why would he care for us? But he does. And so the second point is we are created for a purpose. God, in his incredible planning, God, in his incredible generosity, 
has made us, he's made you, he has chosen you, and he's made humanity special. He made us different. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So you were made in the image of God. And also everyone next to you was made in the image of God. God did something different when he made humanity. In between all the planet making and star making, in between making all the animals and the trees and the plants, God said, let's make one thing in our likeness. And that is us. The inherent value in humanity is because God has made us in his image. And so we believe that every human life has value because God has given it value. The unborn child has value. The elderly person has value. Those who are sick have value because God has made them in his image. And so being created means that we have a purpose. It also means that absolutely no one here is an accident. That is the truth. God has chosen you and made you. The circumstances of your birth or your parents are irrespective of the fact that God chose that you would be made. He built you and he made you. And so we see in this psalm, it actually reflects that early bit of Genesis about how God has made us for a purpose. He made us to rule over the earth. And he also built us for relationship. We saw last week with what Dan was preaching at how God being the loving father, wanted to bring us into that relationship. Loving for eternity meant God made us to share that love, that we would be part of what he is about. And it also means that our view on life on human rights is different to the world's. Our world is hugely big on human rights at the minute, but that is, that is a hangover. That is a hangover from being a Christian society. We even see uh, secular historians now talking and tracing how we have, as a secular society, have our values, how human rights are big up there. They're actually saying it's a hangover from Christianity. The inherent value in humanity is built in because we believe we're built in the image of God. Other belief systems don't have that. And a secular belief system actually takes us away from that. It says, you know, our society will preach human rights, 
but without a basis for it. What gives humanity its right? What gives humanity the right for each to be equal? It's not been a common belief system throughout the years. Greek philosophers didn't believe it. Some were made to be slaves, some were made to rule. That's just the way it is. You see, philosophers like Nietzsche, where actually that Christian belief breaks down. And we see things like survival of the fittest, where people can be trodden down so that others succeed. Human rights actually start to fade away when you remove the God element. And yet, our individualistic society is countered by the life-giving death of Jesus. No greater love has any man than this, that he would give up his life for his friends. Jesus came and gave his everything that we might live. It's the ultimate cure for an individualistic society is a savior who gives himself for others. And so we've had the worship of God through the creation. We've had that we are created for a purpose. And third, we have a new creation. Because God isn't finished yet. He's not done creating and making. And we believe that God, in being creator of heavens and earth, he created the physical universe, but he's also created a spiritual side. God is spirit. We also believe in, in angels. And so when this psalm, it talks about how you made him a little lower than the angels. It's talking about Jesus. Let's have a look in, uh, in Hebrews 2, verses 6 and 9. It says this, There is a place where someone has testified, What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, and now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So a very quick run through in that we believe God created everything good. We believe that humanity sinned and that the world has fallen because of it. We believe God had a plan. He knew about this. He himself, Jesus, came, gave up the throne of heaven, came down, became a man. He suffered and died on that cross. And he died in our place. I was, struck by, I was struck by a quote by someone called Octavius Winslow um, and a massive tangent. Octavius Winslow is called Octavius because he was the eighth child. Personal opinion, if you have so many children that you start numbering them and giving them names, it's too many children. But um, anyhow, <laughs> Octavius said this, 
So completely was Jesus bent upon saving sinners by the sacrifice of himself, he created the tree upon which he was to die and nurtured from infancy the men who were to nail him to the accursed wood. The mind-blowing thing about God being creator, he knew that his creation would kill him. He knew that he would suffer and die at the hands of his creation in order to redeem them. His love was so great that he went to the cross. But it didn't end there. Because Jesus rose again. And Jesus rising again brings so much to us because Jesus rose to new life. He was the first fruits of a new creation. What we see in Christ rising is we see the promise that we ourselves are being drawn into. We see it in baptism, actually. We see how we, going under the water, we die like Jesus died. We die in him, which means all our sin, everything we have done wrong, that's been paid for. And then back up out of the water, slightly quickly than I've just demonstrated, um, means that we are raised to life. That we have new life in him, that we are a new creation, that we are born again. This means that we're no longer trapped under the old creation, our old ways. We're no longer slaves to sin. In rising with Christ, we have life in him where we're not bound to that anymore. It means that by being a new creation, we can say no to sin. We can live no longer bound by that. There is freedom. I thought it was brilliant what Mark brought today. Actually, there is nothing too sticky, no lip gloss to water repellent that it can't be cleaned away. And it's because that new creation is not anything we've made or done. That new creation is entirely dependent upon a creator God creating, making us new. It also means we can take captive every thought. We're free to do it. We're free to live for God in our new body, in our new creation. But I also want to say, you know, we look forward to a new heavens and a new earth. How incredible it is to be able to look at what God has made now. How incredible it will be when it's not a fallen creation. When God makes things anew. When we can explore the how of what he's made. But also, I think my final challenge in this as well is, a new creation means we have faith for miracles. Because I think what we see when God breaks in with the miraculous is we see a bit of that new creation happening now. When we see healings, we see the point where God is going to heal everything, where we're going to live in a time where there won't be illness. When we see God providing for us, we, see, we have a foretaste of what it'll be like just to be completely cast upon him, where he just provides for our every need. 
Let us have faith, actually, for the miraculous because we believe that God has promised a new creation for us. We believe that God is continuing to work. He has not just left us on our own. And it also means that if we are broken, come to God. He makes us new creations. He has done it all. It's not about us. All right, I'm going to pray.